Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Our text this morning that we'll be studying is Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Follow along as I read, please. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that, In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come boldly before the throne of grace to receive grace and mercy to help in time of need. Thank you for the access that we have because of Jesus. We echo Paul's prayer that our eyes would be open, the eyes of our hearts, so that we could understand and grasp your rich, deep love for us so that we'd be able to have hearts and minds that comprehend along with one another corporately just how vast and immeasurable and boundless this grace is. Thank you for choosing to make us the objects of your love and affection. We don't boast in anything other than Jesus and him crucified and gloriously raised from the dead. May your word refresh our hearts and minds. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We are in Ephesians chapter 2, and I would encourage you to turn there in your Bible to have that word in front of you as we study Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10. We will endeavor to put it in context. It's great to come together and study the word of God and to remember what is true. I've labeled this text beginning at ground zero, from death to life. Ground zero is the point on the Earth's surface directly above or below an exploding nuclear bomb. We talk about the World Trade Center, ground zero. We talk about the port in Beirut, ground zero. The site of devastation, disaster, or violent attack, it's a starting point or base for some activity. And Ephesians chapter 2 is exactly that. But the big idea of this text is to simply say that human depravity, human depravity is no match for divine generosity. It's the same way Paul says, where sin increased, grace did much more abound. 
Our depravity, our sinfulness is no challenge to God's generosity, to his riches. And really, that's what Ephesians is telling us in this text, that human depravity is no match for divine generosity. I wrestled with the word generosity. I've tried to think of perhaps some other synonyms, but I trust that by the time we end our study in Ephesians, it's a standalone study that will walk away saying, we are thankful that God is rich. We are thankful that God is a generous God because who God is swallows up who we are. Are. And our depravity is no match for divine generosity. God's goodness, God's greatness overwhelms us as we are. But I'd like to take Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and place it inside of the larger context. I want to show you the movement of Paul in Ephesians that gets us to chapter 2, 1 through 10, and then what follows that particular paragraph. In chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, the Apostle Paul emphasizes three ideas. It's structurally very neat. In verse 4, he says that we've been chosen by the Father. We as a church, we as a people, have been chosen by the Father. The concluding stanza is that it is to the praise of his glorious grace. And then in verses 7 through 12, we are redeemed by the Son. The concluding stanza is to the praise of his glory. Those ideas are in synonym. They're in parallel. Chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son. And then verses 13 and 14, sealed by the Spirit. And it's all to the praise of his glory. Now, when you and I read the statement to the praise of his glorious grace or to the praise of his glory or to the praise of his glory, and each one of those statements, chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, sealed by the Spirit, all of those are visional statements. They're all ending with this singular idea that one day the entire earth will be covered with the knowledge of his glory as the waters cover the sea. This is another way of saying that truth. They are visional statements to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, you and I as the people of God have been chosen by the Father. Amen? We've been redeemed by the Son. Amen? We have been sealed by the Spirit. Amen? That's what that statement is supposed to do for us. If I'm in the city of Ephesus... I'm in the shadow of Artemis, Diana, great as Diana of Ephesus, Acts chapter 19. And I hear that God has chosen me, that the Son has redeemed me, that the Spirit has sealed me. That has an impact on me as an individual. We've become comfortable with such deep, thick theological truth. But that's what's happening here. And it's repeating itself. You move to the next paragraph, 15 through 23 and listen to the language of the initial verse for this reason because i have heard of your faith in the lord jesus christ your love toward all the saints i do not cease to give thanks for you thank god that you're here with us this morning remembering you in my prayers that the god of our lord jesus christ the father of glory may give you now listen to this paul's praying for the ephesian church that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Paul's prayer is that they would be able to, as a church, wrap their minds around this. It's not for us to simply walk away and check a box. Chosen by God, redeemed by the Son, sealed by the Spirit. Now wrap your mind around that truth. Everything that's happening right now in this time-space sequence is for the praise of his glorious grace. For the praise of his glorious grace. This is what God's doing. Then we walk into ground zero. 
Ground zero is our text in chapter 2, 1 through 10. Here's how we got from where we were to where we now are. So Paul begins with this incredible statement in chapter 1. You've been chosen by God. You've been redeemed by the Son. You've been sealed by the Spirit, all to the praise of His glorious grace. It's visional. God's vision is being fulfilled. Now I'm praying that you will be able to wrap your mind around that. Then he brings us back in chapter 2, 1 through 10 to ground zero. We'll look at chapter 2, 1 through 10 in just a moment. And then in chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, it's absolutely amazing. Because Paul's dealing with a church that's struggling with their Jew-Gentile identity. And the language that Paul uses is that as Gentiles you are far off, as Jews you are nearer, but both of you have to be brought in. And then listen to the descriptive that Paul gives concerning God's redemptive activity. Notice in verse 19 of chapter 2, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, speaking to both Jews and Gentiles, but specifically Gentiles, they're in Ephesus, but you are fellow citizens with all the saints and members of the household of God. Think of what we've been studying in the book of Exodus. Think about this sacred space. Remember, this is about 50, 60 A.D. This is very Jewish context. Remember the sacred space. And now Paul is identifying these Jews and Gentiles as being the household of God. Continue reading in that text. Verse 21. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Remember, if I am a Jew in Israel, that temple was the place where God dwelt. And there's only one temple. If I'm in Ephesus, you have the temple of Artemis, the temple of Diana. It's this huge construct. And now Paul is saying because God chose them, the Son redeemed them, the Spirit sealed them. Paul says, now you people are the household of God. You people are a holy temple in the Lord. And then in verse 22, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Can you not hear the echoes of Exodus and the tabernacle, temple language? Paul says that you, the church, are the household of God. He's using parallel statements. You, the church, are a holy temple. You, the church, are the dwelling place for God. So he goes from chapter 1, chapter 2, and he's wanting our minds to be expanded, to be blown And he says, this is what I am praying. I am praying that you wrap your minds around this truth. You are the household of God. You are a holy temple. You are the dwelling place for God. This place in the gathering, as we come together, we become this. This is who we are in the midst of all the craziness that we are encountering from Monday through Saturday. We come together as the church. And this place is that place. And that is to be blowing our minds. And then Paul's language. I'm wanting us to consider Paul's language. Because you have this idea that human depravity is no challenge or no match to divine generosity. If we look at the language within the text, and I'm wanting us to see this. In chapter 1, verse 18, and if we took time to look at all these references Uh, It would perhaps take more time than I'm going to use this morning. But I'm wanting us to hear something. In chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says, it's inheritance. He doesn't simply say it's inheritance. He says it's glorious inheritance. In chapter 1, verse 23, it describes Jesus Christ and the church as the fullness of him who fills 
all in all. There's this excessive, exaggerated language. In fact, the Greek word used three times in the letter of Ephesians is hyperbole. And we look at hyperbole as if it's exaggerated, unreal speech. But it's actually revelatory speech in our text. So it's not just an inheritance, it is a glorious inheritance. It's not that he simply fills things, he fills everything. In chapter 1, verse 6, he talks about grace, but he describes it as a glorious grace. In chapter 2, verse 4, he talks about love, but not just a love, a great love. In chapter 3, verse 8, he speaks of grace and being glorious. In chapter 2, verse 19, he speaks of his greatness being immeasurable. In chapter 3, verse 8, he speaks of his riches being unsearchable. In chapter 3, verse 10, he says his wisdom is manifold. So in the midst of all this, he's using exaggerated, heightened speech to describe who he is and how vast are his resources. It's a glorious inheritance. It's a great love. It's a glorious grace, an unsearchable richness, a manifold wisdom and immeasurable greatness. Divine generosity is no match or challenge to human depravity. Who we are as a people, who we were as a people, has been completely swallowed up by who he is and what he has done. So Paul uses this extended language to describe just how incredible God is in all of this. So chapter 1, chosen by God, redeemed by the Son, sealed by the Spirit. It's been all to the praise of his glorious grace. God is on mission He's fulfilling his vision. Paul prays that we'd be able to wrap our minds around that. Don't dismiss this at some theological tidbit. It's bedrock. It's who we now are. He's formed us. He takes us then to ground zero, and that's what we'll consider in just a moment. But he says, as a consequence of God's working, no matter where you come from, no matter who you are, when you accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior from sin and death, and you align yourself with this gathering, a gathering, you are now the household of God. You are now a living temple. You are now a dwelling place. That's amazing language. And again, place it against the backdrop of what we've learned in the book of Exodus in our tabernacle, temple speech, and the sacred space. This is who we are. But now let's take all of that and take our text, Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10, and place it in context. There's two primary movements within our passage. And if your Bible is like my Bible, and I believe it is, you have a chapter division between 1 and 2, and it says, by grace through faith, and verses 1 through 10 form a singular paragraph, and then 11 through 22 begins another paragraph. We are looking at 1 through 10. Inside of 1 through 10, there are two movements. The first movement is found in verses 1 through 3, and that's where we get this idea of human depravity. This is who we once were in Adam. This is who we once were in Adam. This is our depravity. Now, notice chapter 2, verse 1, where it says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, we would say that the opposite of dead is life. In fact, Paul makes these contrasts inside of Ephesians. We were once dead, but now we are alive. We were once dark, but now we are light. We were once unwise, but now we are wise. Once we were being filled with wine, now we are being filled with the Spirit. There are these contrasts. What is real interesting for me is if you lay it against temple speech, if you are in the temple or at the temple, everything outside that outer courtyard is deadness. 
Everything outside of Eden is deadness. And the closer you move toward the tree, toward the mercy seat, the closer you are moving toward life and light. And Paul says you were once dead. You were the furthest removed from God that you could possibly be. You were outside the outer court. You were outside the holy place. You were outside the holy of holies. But in Jesus, you have now been placed into the holy of holies on the mercy seat in him. That's what God's doing. That's amazing truth. You were once dead. You were the furthest removed from God that you could possibly be. And think of the language we've looked at with sacred space. Now, something dramatic has happened. And it's happened in Christ. Paul says in our text, Once you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, that's a key idea in Ephesians. We'll talk about it in just a moment. Following, that's what walking does. It's following, once we were disciples, as it were, of Adam. Now we are disciples of Christ. Once we were following this, that, and the other. Now we are following Christ. That's the shift that has taken place because of the gospel. You were dead. You were the furthest removed possible from life. And at that time, you were walking. You were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We often speak of the world, the flesh, and the devil. We have these three opponents. We have these three antagonists. Now, once we were following all that, we were its disciples. That's why Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, which is so important to understand. Cosmic powers are at play right now over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's what we're wrestling against in Ephesians 6. We have to understand that there are these two competing worlds. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 23, Paul says that Jesus has been placed far above And notice what he's been placed far above. It says in verse 21, Far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Verse 22, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. You've got these two competing powers at play, but Jesus is far above all that. But that's what we're wrestling against as the people of God. But Paul says there was a time and place when we were disciples or followers of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And this deadness, this distancing from God showed itself in our allegiance to the world, to the devil, and to the flesh. And the outcome of all this is the wrath of God. The text says in verse 3, we were children of wrath just like the rest of mankind just like the rest of mankind. In Ephesians, Paul says we were the sons of disobedience. Chapter 5, verse 6, it describes us as the sons of disobedience. That's what we once were. That was our past. And as sons, we raged. We raged against God. 
Think about the two competing powers that are at play right now. We've often said, right here is Eden. Out there is Babel. We wonder why the world burns outside of Eden. It's because they are the children of wrath. They are disciples. They are following the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the only outcome, the inevitable outcome of that discipleship is the wrath of God. Jesus is the only one through which we are delivered from the wrath which is to come. That is humanity's depravity. That is who we once were. And if we don't know Jesus, if we don't confess him as Lord and the one whom God has raised from the dead, that is who we still are. We are still under the wrath of God. We are still a part of Babylon, Egypt, Babel. But when we accept Jesus as our Savior from sin and death, when we confess him as Lord and Savior, we become children of Eden. We become children of the garden. So the first three verses describe human depravity. This is what we once were, and we still are if we don't know Jesus. Then Paul shifts. It's one of the greatest statements in the word of God. Verse 4, but God. There is nothing in verses 1 through 3 which would in any way suggest that you or me can deliver ourselves from this condition. But God. But God. Notice the language of our text. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead, even when we were distant from God, the furthest removed possible, he made us alive together with Christ. Divine generosity. This is now our present standing. Here is what we once were. Here is who we now are. Listen to the language that Paul uses. And I've already spoken of this idea that Paul doesn't simply say wisdom. He says manifold wisdom. He doesn't simply say grace. He says glorious grace. He doesn't simply say love, but great love. Glorious inheritance. Unsearchable riches. Paul's language is inflated. It's heightened. It's hyperbole. But the intent is to reveal. The intent is for us as his people to sit back in awe. Notice the word rich as it occurs in Ephesians. Chapter 1, verse 7. Paul says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. The wealth of his grace, this generosity, the riches of his grace. Notice in verse 8, which he lavished. I love being lavished on. I love being lavished on. That's one of the reasons why we love Thanksgiving, right? We eat past the pain. We love it. We love it. God lavished on us. He lavished on us. And all of his resources are infinite. They're abundant. They're unsearchable. They're unmeasurable. That's why human depravity is no match or challenge to divine generosity. But let's look at verse 18 in chapter 1. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Chapter 2, verse 4. But God being rich in mercy, verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 8. 
To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. And again, notice how Paul prays here, how he prayed earlier in chapter 1. You and I need divine intervention to fully understand all that we have in Christ Jesus. It is mind-blowing. That's what's happening. The riches of his grace. And what are those riches? Well, look with me at our text. It says in verse 5 of chapter 2, But God, verse 4, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, he made us alive. And then notice what it says, By grace you have been saved, and he raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, And then verse 7 is a purpose statement. I'll come back to it in just a moment. So that, for this reason, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What has God done? God made us alive. God saved us by grace. God placed us in Christ. This is amazing. And you know what we do with such truth? This is amazing stuff. This is what Paul's writing to these Ephesians in the first century. He made us alive. He saved us by grace. He placed us in Christ. Whereby we become with others who believe the household of God, a living temple, a dwelling place. That's amazing. That is amazing. And why does he do all of this? Verse 7. Verse 7 says, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ. Folks, everything he's saying right here in 2-7, he's already said in chapter 1 to the praise of his glorious grace. God is on mission to fulfill his vision where the entire earth will be covered with the knowledge of his glory as the waters cover the sea. Do you believe that? That's what gives us hope in our immediate chaos. I look around and I don't think this thing's moving in the right direction at all. But it is. No one and nothing will thwart God from doing what he does. All of this, we are a display of that in the moment. But a day is coming when we will become this cosmic display of God's glorious grace. That day is coming. We are a display of God's richness, God's mercy, God's great love. That's the reason. That's what we are in the immediate, but that's what we will be in eternity. This cosmic display. Look what I have done. And remember the starting point? You're dead. You're as far away from God as you could possibly be. And I've taken that clump of clay and I made it one of my own. I took all these pieces And I crafted them into my household, my temple, my dwelling place. And everyone who sees it is going to fall down and say, 
Thou art worthy to receive honor and glory, power and might. This is what God has done. Notice the text. It says in verse 7, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And then we have those verses which everyone knows. For by grace have you been saved through faith, that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. This is why this has happened. This is, this is why we become this cosmic display. First of all, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. There's nothing you have done except believe and receive the gift. There's no grounds for boasting. For by grace have you been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. This is why we become this cosmic display. This is why we are saying to everyone everywhere by our simple gathering, by our simple existence, Jesus is Lord. God is winning. God is winning. The second thing is found in verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. This is the intrinsic, inevitable outcome of the Jesus seed. The Jesus seed is always producing this gospel fruit of the good work. And then notice the language we commented earlier. Now let's flesh this out. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That we should follow in them. Once we were disciples of the world, the flesh, and the devil, we followed that. Now we are disciples of Jesus. We are in Christ and we follow this. That's our walk. That's what we do. We are this. That's why we are this cosmic display. We always struggle with, well, what is this good work? What does this walk look like? Well, if we took time, which we won't, but chapters 4 and 5 describe it. If you look at chapter 4, verse 1, it begins with, I therefore, Paul shifts from declaring this humongous truth in 1 through 3 to what it looks like in the horizontal as it's played out with one another. Chapters 4 and 5, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk. It's the same word found in chapter 2, 2, chapter 2, 10, walk. It's consistent. It occurs in chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 17, chapter 5, verse 2, 8, and 15. That's what this good work or walk looks like. God chose us. Jesus redeemed us. The Spirit sealed us. And this is what that looks like. 4 and 5. We are following Jesus. We are disciples of Christ. And folks, those two ideas are going in opposite directions. What we once were in Adam... We no longer are. We're not following the world. We're not following the flesh. We're not following the devil. We are following Jesus. This is who we are in Christ. And those walks are polar opposites. Do we find ourselves still doing some of the things we once did? Yes. That's because we still have life in the horizontal. But my walk is marked by Christ. This is who we are. That's why we have said throughout the entire study, human depravity is no match or challenge to divine generosity. God is rich. God is glorious. And he's put all that on us. So this is who we now are in Christ Jesus. And, and we really want to walk away just basking and bathing in the abundance of God's riches on us. This is who we are. And nothing out there can touch this. Nothing out there can touch this. My status with God is unalterable by whatever Babylon or Egypt or Babel throws at me. 
I rest on bedrock and in Christ. So what do we do with all of this? Well, first of all, where are you in the storyline? Where are you in the storyline? Are you still in one through three? If you don't know Jesus as your Savior from sin and death, then you are still in one through three. And what you need is a but God moment. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior from sin and death, then I invite and call you to come to him. He alone who is the one who puts you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. Individually, where are you in all of this? And I would say that the significant majority who are hearing my voice have gone from one through three and are now in four through ten. Amen? But God, what do we need to realize as a community, corporately? We must never forget that as a community of faith, that's who we are as the gathered, are showcasing God's grace. This is a cosmic display. This is who we are. We are welcoming everyone everywhere to come into this family of families. And we are at peace one with another because of the cross. And that is our message, that Jesus indeed is Lord and Jesus is alive. As the people of God gathered, we are the household of God. We are a living temple. We are the dwelling place for God. And all are welcomed and received. Why? Because we all begin in one through three. And when we accept Jesus, we end in four through ten. We are the recipients of God's glorious grace. Please stand with me as we close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have had to come under the sound of your word. We pray that the Spirit of God would take the word of God and do a sure work in the people of God. That we would feel the weight of this glorious truth. That our depravity is no match, no challenge to your generosity, to your capability. And that your grace completely swallows up our sin. I would pray for anyone under the sound of my voice who does not know Jesus, that this would weigh upon them in such a a way that they would run to Jesus, that they would respond to the promptings of the Spirit, and that, Father, today they would be saved. May all of us leave this place wallowing in the abundance of your goodness to us who were once sinners. Thank you, Father, for this time together as your people and these reminders. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.